Welcome to the Act and Unwind podcast, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your visiting host, Stephen Barrows. Thank you for listening. If you like this program, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts as to help more people find this show. So this week, I'm joined by several Acton staff. First, Michael Matheson-Miller, who's Senior Research Fellow and Producer of Poverty, Inc. Welcome, Michael. Thanks, Steve. Good to be here with you. Dan Huger, who is Librarian and Research Associate here at Acton. Welcome, Dan. Thank you, Stephen. And last but not least, Dylan Pommen, Executive Editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and Research Fellow at Acton. Welcome, Dylan. Good to be here. All right. Well, this week we're going to be talking about a new issue um, of Religion and Liberty, which was put together by our guest editor, Michael Matheson-Miller, and the topic was on ideology. And so I think as our guest editor here in the room for this edition, I wanted to reach out first to Michael and ask, so what what, what was your goal? Why, why did you decide to pursue an issue covering ideology? Well, as I write in the in the editor's comments, I mean, I'm thinking a lot about what's going on and the way we have a lot of discussions today on the right and the left. And I think there's a tendency towards ideological thinking. I think it's one of the temptations of our age, actually. And so, and one of the things that made me think about it, which I write about in my essay, <clears throat> uh, my, my on the essay, uh, that thinking in an age of ideology is not just the political aspects, but even how almost everybody feels they have to have their own theory of everything that explains everything that's going on. And so I write about this in the essay. I'm, I'm Roman Catholic, and I think Catholicism is true. I think it guides us and gives us a way of living, and I think it's a, a proper response to, to, um, to reality. Uh, yet Catholicism is not a theory of everything. It doesn't give us an answer to everything. And I don't just mean chemistry and physics. I mean it just doesn't tell us everything, right? Jesus didn't come as a technical Messiah to solve all of our problems in, in, in the way we want. Um, but I think that, you know, if you look at every age, uh, say the medieval period or the Renaissance or whatever, it might, everybody has their different temptations to, to kind of reduce Catholicism to a certain thing. And ours, I think, is an ideological one. And so as I, as I write, you know, we, we, apart, there's a lot of reasons. Relativism, I think empiricism, which we can talk about. Uh, and Sam writes about that as well. The other is this idea of that we need a theory of everything. So if you if you look at what are the dominant theories of our times, Marx, Freud, Darwin, they explain, in a sense, almost everything. This is how the world works. And um, what and there's also a suppression of questions that goes on. And so what we do is we think, oh, well, Catholicism must also explain everything. And so there's this almost ideological tension. So we see it, of course, in politics very strongly. Um, but I start with the, 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 the Catholic position because you wouldn't expect to see it there. But actually, no, no, it's right there that we want our articulation of the world to explain absolutely everything. And that's the standard. And if I say to you, Steve, well, how do you explain that? If you say, I don't know, right? Okay, well, you obviously your your theory isn't isn't good enough, and I think that's just one of the temptations of our time to think ideologically. So, so, so that's why I want you, to deal with it. The theory of everything uh, is that how you would define ideology, or if we were just to get to the basic definition, what 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 are we talking about? What is ideology? So maybe I'll reach out to so, Dan. Yeah, so, Dan, why don't you so, start? So this is this is something I had always thought that ideologies are captivating because of their explanatory power, mm. and in reading this this. Uh, Issue. There are some great points made in the introductory essay uh, on the resilience of ideology by Carlo Lancelotti, in which he uh, he quotes um, Augusto Del Noci talking about uh, sort of this question 
and uh, the quote begins: "The reduction of the life to to uh, the reduction of the idea to an instrument of production implies the disappearance of the distinction between philosophy as contemplation or self awareness, and ideology as a practical instrument to act in the world, and the consequent absorption into ideology of all cultural productions. That is, the distinction between truth and falsehood." is not carried out outside of ideology, but within it. One can distinguish between reactionary ideologies, which justify and thus falsely falsify the given reality, and progressive and liberating ideologies. So this is a question, and, and this, this sort of takes it in the other direction, is that ideology is not about a totalizing way of seeing the world, but ideology is about a totalizing way of answering life's persistent questions and our problems. And it's not good for its explanatory power, but as power as such to reshape society. So let me let me ask a little bit more about this because when I think of ideology, I'm trying to distinguish it from, say, just philosophy, right? I mean, people have philosophical visions, they have philosophical ideas, and they try to use those as means of understanding the world around them. Um, how, how can we distinguish between what's just healthy philosophy and then ideology? So who'd like to run with that? And Dylan, any, any ideas? Sure. Um, well, I think I think healthy philosophy. Um, tries to resist uh, monistic thinking. So philosophy, in fact, began with people like Thales saying, all is water, right? And that was, actually, he did a lot with that. Uh, as you might be surprised to learn. Um, but but there's a lot of ways in which, you know, water can be solid or it can be liquid or it can be gas. And, there, you know, he's he's talking about this, this sense in which one thing can turn into another thing. And, you know, he goes with that. But obviously, it's a very limited perspective and has limited explanatory power. Uh, and I think, you know, as, as you go on in the history of philosophy, you get people like Plato, Aristotle talks about there's four causes to everything. There's uh, 10 categories and he's expanding, right? Um, and you get the same thing in the modern era. You get uh, a series of, you know, dialectical philosophy. Maybe you uh, end up with Hegel. Everything is a thesis antithesis synthesis uh, or somebody like Schelling or whatever. Um, and again, people can kind of pigeonhole everything into their one process uh, that is everything. And I think I think better philosophers, um, so th these are all technically philosophy, but I think better philosophy, more careful philosophy, uh, philosophy that withstands the tests of time um, and in a lot of criticism in its own time are those that are more adaptable and more humble. Mm. Um, just to simply say, I think this explains this one aspect of reality, um, and I think it's really important, but I don't know about that, right? Um, one of my favorite quotes uh, is from uh, Epictetus, the Stoic philosopher. He says, if a man would wish to learn philosophy, he must first of all put away conceit because it's impossible for a man to begin to learn what he has a conceit that he already knows. Oh, that's an interesting interesting way to put it. When I think about the humility dimension here, it reminds me of something that Sam Gregg had pointed out in his essay in this edition, where he, he said that essentially the ideologue believes that everything is ultimately settled, like they've, they, they got it all. Whereas it seems like a, a sound philosopher would continue to ask questions, maybe even continue to to re-examine the way they think. What do you think about that, Michael, that everything is essentially settled from the ideologue's perspective? Well, I think I think Dylan hits on something. I mean, and I think it's interesting. We could, there's probably not time in this podcast to go back to Dan's point because I think there, Dan brings out there's two kinds of ways that ideology manifests, right? One is a theory of everything that tries to explain all reality. And the other is to, in a sense, 
answer the problems of sin, evil, suffering, and death. And like it's so that it's that it's practice, which Sam Gregg notes, right? How there's a movement between this enlightenment idea of okay, let's improve the world, et cetera, with with Smith, and that quickly gets into this is how we're going to solve the problems of evil, sin, suffering, and death, and have the withering away of the state, and everything will be worked out. So there's, I think, I think there's actually two things going on or tensions in in the ideology. But I I think the the philosophy and the humility thing are important. So in my essay, I and when I talk, I often do this comparison between the philosophical attitude and the ideological attitude. And I think Dylan makes a point. This is not to say everybody who says they're a philosopher is not an ideologue, right? They're, they're like, I mean, Hegel, I, th- I mean, Marx would say he's a philosopher and I mean, he's clearly an ideologue. So um, uh, so a couple things. One is the comparison I think is about philosophy is that one of the ways is the philosophos, like just linguistically, the love of wisdom, the, the pursuit of wisdom, which implies an openness and a reverence before being. And Noelle Maring writes about this in her, yes. in her essay, yeah. that reverence and then a lack of hubris to actually be shaped by reality. Okay, and that doesn't mean that you're not wrestling with things or that you don't hold solid positions. So, you know, Aristotle, Aquinas, uh, are, were very, like, in a sense, open to being corrected. Aquinas later said, you know, everything I wrote is straw. And, and yet there's this, like, the law of non-contradiction holds. Right, so there's a there's being there's being shaped and open. I think a, a humility. So the the philosophical attitude is one that is always wanting to be corrected, and that's where I think there's something that you know you look at the, the Platonic view. He has positions, but it's dialogical. Now, Carlo Lancelotti, I'm not sure if it's here or in a discussion I had with him, makes uh, uh, the podcast I did with him and makes this point that what how do you resist ideology? Well, ideology is often the suppression of questions. And here you see, like Eric Vogelin talks about this, right? That Marx um, was asked a question, like that's not a question for socialist man, right? And when you when you start to have this suppression of questions, you it doesn't mean that. And I want to be clear to like to listeners. I mean, I think all of you on the table see this, but it, this doesn't mean that you're relativistic and skeptical and nothing. Everything is just fluid. There's a difference between that and a suppression of questions. Like that's not a question for socialist man, or for Darwinist man, or for Catholic man. Right? No, that there's a question. Here's here's the best, and this goes to Dylan's point, the best possible way of answering. So I think I think this humility and reverence before being, um, w- which is not a, rel- a radical relativism or a skepticism, but humility is essential. Whereas the ideologue is, and think about the language, the idea he gets an insight into reality, and maybe that insight's true, and then like def- decides, oh, I have now explained reality or solve the problem of sin. And now this is how it all works. And so in one sense, one is an openness to reality and a response. The other one is maybe it begins that way and then turns into the full articulation or somehow solution to reality. Some things I water. Stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just not all things. Right, exactly. Does does the ideologue disregard feedback from experience as Lancelotti points out? What do you think about that? I think so, but you guys, we can talk, I can talk about it, but I think so. So- not all experience, but I think experience that doesn't fit the idea or the explanation. And that's where the suppression of questions comes in. So does that mean if you believe that there are certain truth claims that are immune from revision, that you're an ideologue? I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that precisely. Because again, the ideology is not about the truth. It mm. is about the expediency and the power to transform and to reshape. Um, and 
when when you talk about you know the relation to facts to ideology, there's another another part late in that le- essay where uh, Ancelotti tries to discuss you know ways of confronting ideology, and and one of the ways he highlights is that one of the ways that you can reach ideologues is to tell them that their ideological means does not lead to their ends. You don't dispute the facts of um, – you don't dispute sort of the ideological claims and you don't you know, appeal to sort of contradictions in the ideology itself but actually, actually work this out in a little different way. Um, he talks about how the ideologue is motivated by the desire to affect change and will dismiss as abstract arguments about the truth or internal consistency of the doctrines. However, an honest ideologue will stout, start doubting his ideology if, it is sh- if he has shown that, it, uh, that in actuality it is not producing the effects it was supposed to produce. This is one of the reasons we have a big ideological shakeup in 1989 with the fall of communism. Mm. Like the theoretical arguments were there. This had been debated since the days of Marx and Engels themselves. When you really got a shift in elite opinion, and it was not complete and was not total, but a lot of people come 1989 start to reevaluate, okay, maybe this sort of economics of central planning does not lead to the sort of production gains. You have famously in Paul Samuelson's textbook, you know, the prognostifications of when the Soviets are going to overtake the American economy and it moves back and back and back and back. And then in 89, that argument disappears from that right. textbook and its revisions. Can I ask a question? When mm-hmm. it disappeared, was it corrected or did it disappear? It disappeared. Which is also, I think, by the way, a sign of an ideologue. I think this question of truth is important. So um, that's, I think, the other problem of thinking in a time of ideology, right? Because we think, oh, any committed or absolutist truth claim must therefore be an ideological claim. But I think the philosophical mind say, let's take the law of non-contradiction, right? right is both experiential and, and logical. Or let's take, for example, Joseph Ratzinger, later Bennett XVI's critique of empiricist rationality. Right, so empiricist rationality holds: in order for something to be true, it must be empirically ver- or re- reasonable. Reasonable, it must be empirically verified, or verifiable. And his point is, and others, well, you can't empirically verify that claim, exactly. right? So it's incoherent on its own terms. And so, in, in now we say, okay, that opens us up, I think, to to a, a, a world. And so the truth, as Aquinas defines it, right, is the conforming of the mind to reality. Right, and so, the, so, so to hold something to be true, based on say experiential, empirical, or or logical reasoning, right? So certain things are true, like some things are water. Okay, <laughs> that's true, right? And that's empirical, right? And then, um, so the law of non-contradiction or whatever, that doesn't mean that it's an ideological position because a, it's not as it's not either a theory of everything, and nor is it like the solution to the problems, right? I think there's one other thing that's important, and this actually, a, a friend of mine gave me the insight into this because. In one sense, like I sometimes make the error of saying, okay, it's not reasonable. But say the certain, say, Darwinists or Marxists, or whatever, they, they're very reasonable. Everything is completely coherent and rational within their system. So where is the unreason? Well, it's, it's again, it's like it's outside the system. On its own terms, it's not coherent. Inside its terms, it's totally, co- in, totally coherent. And so... There's also another thing with ideology. It's not just an intellectual 
It's a volitional question. It's an attachment of the will to a position that's so attached, right, that that becomes the shape. And so that's why, in some ways, rationality doesn't work. Even if the, the, even if the ideologue is a hyper-rationalist, you can't use reason with them broadly. You can't say, well, that's incoherent on its own terms because the attachment is volitional, right? So the racist, for example, well, you know, can, I can show you all the empirical evidence. Like, they don't care, okay? The, the communist, they don't care that it didn't work because the attachment is a volitional attachment. And I think that's, that was an insight that uh, a friend gave me that I think really helps also understand this relationship to truth because you're dealing with the intellectual commitment and also will what the will sees and holds on to. Well, I have to say that I was really excited when you were going to put this uh, issue together because on the one hand, when Dan mentions the events of 1989 and we see these you know, geopolitical implications of ideological shifts and so forth, I was excited about this edition because in more subtle ways, I fear that ideology is seeping into certain aspects of our lives that have real implications on the day-to-day activities we Absolutely. engage in. So I'll just give you just as an example, my, my wife is a physician and, you know, I think as a physician, like virtually all physicians, she's seeking to practice medicine in a way that is best for her patients and examines the empirical evidence um, uh, as, as studies convey and so forth. And, and yet now we find that, that the medical community itself could have certain aspects that are driven by ideological motives. And I think sometimes you find that in people debating of whether or not to trust certain studies, uh, whether or not those studies have been objectively assessed and refereed. And so what, what, what does ideology do to institutions that we ordinarily trust? What, what are some of the risks there? Because on the one hand, I don't really fear, fear the geopolitical battles like people did you know, 30 years ago, but I am more concerned about how it affects institutions in subtle ways. I think one expression of this relevant to what you're talking about is that there's a difference between science and scientism. Mm. Scientism is an ideological appropriation of science, right? Um, and people can do that in all sorts of ways. So you can do it purely for the kind of logical positivist sense as as Michael already uh, engaged with the verification principle, that sort of thing that's self-refuting, but also more subtle subtle ways. So, um, and I think even in unintended ways to some degree, I think a lot of uh, science journalists, I complain about them often as much as I, I love journalism and science and I, and I hope that we get some better science journalism, but as an editor of an academic journal, uh, I see reporting uh, saying new study finds X, right? And then I go to the link and it's like a working paper. So it has not been peer reviewed, mm. has not been published, has not, no one has attempted to replicate it yet. This is not scientific at all. All of those things have to happen uh, for any kind of advance of science to be made. It takes a long time. It takes years often, right. um, which also means that if something's new, it's not yet science, right? It, you, should, you should start, uh, you know, it is probably arbitrary, but I, I say like start with something 10 years old and older and let's say, okay, this is a little more, we can be a little more confident of this. But even then, there are cases uh, so where things have been overturned with, with new studies, new evidence, um, that sort of thing. Um, but, but yeah, so you can find that in the reporting of ideas, but you can also find that there's all sorts of, you know, literal known errors of, um, you know, begging the question, right, of, of uh, you know, certain biases 
creeping into the method, again, when it's not replicated, when you haven't had uh, all of the checks and balances, which are thankfully in place in the scientific community, in the academic community. Um, but a lot of times people just run with stuff. Uh, it's boring to try to replicate somebody else's assignment. It's far more interesting to have your own breakthrough. And and so there's we've seen in psychology, for example, replication crisis over the last right, 20 years, right. yep. although they're, they're working on it to their credit. Um, but I doubt they're the only ones. Um, and and so I think that's where you get ideology creeping in uh, when science is failing to truly be science, uh, to truly have that rigor, um, to be unafraid of uh, not knowing um, or being wrong. Um, that's, that's fundamental to science. I think any good scientist will tell you that, is to say, well, there's only so much we know, and we could be wrong about what we think we know. Uh, we start there. Um, that's what makes something... Scientific. So you know, on the one can hand, I, you, can I add something real quick to that? Yeah. But mm-hmm. I just think this actually this this crisis of science is a crisis of philosophy, because we've lost the idea that truth exists and we can know it. And then this is what I always say, like when I used to teach, like truth exists, we can know it. But that doesn't mean we do. We might be wrong, right? And and I say a couple of things that happen, like this idea: science is settled. The science is settled. Well, science by 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 definition is never fully settled. Yeah. Right. I mean, right. this is the, the question. I'm not saying there aren't scientific elements. I'm saying once the science gets settled, I think Nassim Taleb actually in anti-fragile deals a lot with re, uh, re, repeatability and, and, and he, I think it's he who makes this point, like kind of following on Dylan's, right? You, you, it's, if somebody writes a piece, a study, and then you have to react to that study and they did, they did the study 15 times and one time you got the result you wanted Everybody builds on the one result, but it's not repeatable. And so there's this whole building up there. But I think the science of settled. I also think just one other, um, one other uh, element that happened with science. I think it's uh, the mathematician John Lennox it gave this talk. Uh, he was asked to review Stephen Hawking's work. And he said, we have to make a distinction between a scientist doing science and then a scientist speaking, which is not the same thing. You know? And then he, he critiques Stephen Hawking, because Stephen Hawking said something like, um, said something like, what's religion? Religion is just a fairy tale for adults who are afraid of the dark. And they asked Lennox, who's, I think, a believer, a uh, Christian, uh, and said, you know, do you want to respond? He goes, would you like a one-liner? And he said, sure. He goes, okay, science is a fairy tale for adults who are afraid of the light. And everybody laughed. And then he said, but don't take that as a scientific position because I happen to be a mathematician, but I'm not doing math right now. And I think that's the other the other problem. It's almost like scientists have become the priests. Because we live in a broken philosophical, ideological world, the scientist somehow has like a, the, the priestly class or the prophet who's able to articulate everything. And then this goes right into medicine. I think there's also just deep social pressure, right? So science is not somehow immune from the rest of the philosophical crisis of truth and reason under which we live. So that's why, going back to the, this, the practice, I mean, and here's the very um, relevant and also uh, probably provocative one, but you know, a lot of people are skeptical about vaccines and they're told that they're anti-science, okay? But these are the same journals who are telling you that boys can become girls, right? So it's complete refutation of any like biological evidence, right? And they're just, it's, it's being forced upon you to believe things that everyone knows are false. Boys are boys, girls are girls. They're biologically different. And then all the science, no, no, they're not, not anymore, right? Oh, and take this vaccine. 
right? And so you wonder, you, you, the, a lot of the skepticism and, and in a sense, chaos around medicine is the failure of scientists and physicians to actually stand up to political social pressure. And that's where medicine becomes idealized. I mean, ideologicalized. That's a new word. There's a really good example of this, and I'm glad you brought this up, Michael, because I think it illustrates this example, what you've just said. Back in August, the American Academy of Pediatrics uh, had determined not to allow a group on uh, at their annual conference. It's called the group was called the Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine, and they wanted to simply sit up a booth and talk about some of the you know risks with the the standard uh, gender affirming care, right? And and they just completely prevented them from being at the site. And you and this is reported by Abigail Schreier in the in the Wall Street Journal. And and this is one of the things I think turns people to become cynical, right? We have the American Academy of Pediatrics, which presumably is listening and gathering the evidence to determine what the best treatments are for individuals, no matter you know what the pediatric challenge is. And yet you find reports like this, and suddenly it leads to a distrust of the institution. So when it comes to ideology, do, do, do you see that in other areas besides you know, medicine? What other areas are, 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 are causing these doubts? You have, you have this... You have this everywhere, and you have this for all time. This is Lord Acton, you know, famously when he, he, he becomes a historian of ideas. And one of the reasons he becomes an, a historian of ideas is he starts thinking, you know, maybe I'll be a historian of institutions. And he comes to the realization that, quote, the history of institutions is often a history of deception and illusions, for their virtue depends on the ideas that produce uh, and on the spirit that preserves them. And the form may remain unaltered when the substance has passed away, end quote. So what you're looking at here is ideological capture. And you see this, you see this in states. I mean, what is, what is the state supposed to do? Preserve justice, enhance the common good? And we have myriads of examples of states that are captured, that become tyrannical, that become... Um, you know these sorts of things, and this is part of the this is part of the temptation of ideology is to ignore what the famous Yogi Berra once said was that in theory that there's no difference between theory and practice, but that while in practice there is, um, and that inability to differentiate, let's say, medicine as such from the American Academy of Pediatrics, is part of that problem, and it's and it's a pervasive challenge to all human institutions. Can okay, I say? So, can I say? I, the pervasive challenge is actually one of the reasons, Steve, you asked, why did I do ideology uh, as a theme? Uh, because the temptation of ideology is a pervasive challenge to me, right? And to the Acton Institute and to every one of us at this table. And I think that's another reason I wanted to, to do that because the world is very, very complex, right? And I don't, none of us, I think, on this table is, is a relativist. Right? I'm not a relativist. I, I find it an incoherent position, and I'm happy to make that argument. Uh, at another time. Um, and I'm not an empiricist, but I really think empirical reasoning and empirical evidence is very, very important. I think science is very important. I mean, this is part of like a, a, a kind of a commitment to the ability for us to, to for knowledge. But I, I, I worry about myself, right? Because, you know, I have a certain view of the world that I think is, let's say, let's talk, and I'm not going to talk about the law of non-contradiction. Let's talk about like the Acton Institute. We think you know, generally that markets, that is, the, there should be space for commutative justice. It's very much part of a flourishing society. And um, we also have other views of the limited state and things like that. Um, and I think they're generally right. 
Okay. And of course, you know, I, as we all have critiques, I give a lecture at Acton called the cultural critiques of capitalism, a lot of critiques of capitalism, but I think generally commutative justice is really important. And yet I know sometimes as I look at my, my trajectory, when certain positions that say I held five years ago or 10 years ago, working here at Acton, working with you and other colleagues and, you know, my positions change. I get challenged. I'm like, wait a minute. I was completely blind to this whole aspect of what I was, you know, I thought this was, I was kind of reacting against the progressive left, but I wasn't taking seriously the weakness of my own position. And I think that's another reason I wanted to, to do this uh, project on, on ideology is to not to just challenge, you know, others, but sure. to challenge ourselves. Dylan. Um, so I was hoping I could jump in uh, because to segue um, related to both of those points, um, Steve, I really liked your essay. Um, in particular, you talk about how the tools of economics can help us detect ideology, specifically in economic analysis, but I think um, perhaps even beyond that, uh, would you be willing to yeah, touch sure. on that a bit? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one of the things I've found is that economics can be rife with ideological perspectives. We already talked about a Marxist view of economics, and you can see some you know, tendencies within circles that become anarcho-capitalistic, where they think the market is the be-all, end-all of solving all problems in society. So it's this, you know, uh, as, you, as you described it, a theory of everything. And we have to be very cautious as economists to do that. And, and so in my essay, I tried to point out a few tools that people could use to guard themselves against the temptation to succumbing to ideology. And, you know, one of those things is, is opportunity costs. You know, everything in life does have trade-offs when you make a choice. <clears throat> and so if individuals who uh, assert certain things or make economic claims, whether from a policy standpoint or otherwise, if they seemed to treat it as if there are no alternatives or no foregone opportunities, then you're, it's usually a good sign that this person's thinking in an ideological fashion. Now, I think most economists will acknowledge that there are trade-offs to every decision that is made. And another thing that I think is really important is externalities. We know that individuals, we behave, we make choices, and those choices do oftentimes have impacts on others outside of the transaction in the marketplace itself. You know, a very common example of this would be pollution. Another example would be uh, the benefits of getting a vaccine that spill over to the rest of society. Now, there are economists that will talk about very ingenious ways to internalize those externalities that really have to be taken seriously, uh, but at the same time, to pretend as if those things don't uh, exist, or that if they exist, the market itself will in turn figure out a way on its own to internalize the externality apart from rule of law, apart from other um, important functions. Well, again, that's a, a good sign that somebody's thinking in an ideological fashion. So there's just a couple of examples. And I think uh, it's, it's, it's oftentimes overlooked when people read the popular articles on, on economics. Yeah, I, I thought that was really helpful. I, li I like that. And I, and I also think Noel Mehring does kind of something else is talking about reverence as yes. another tool to to help us to kind of challenge us to realize, okay, you know, insight, like this, I talked about a little bit before, but we get an insight into something you're like, oh my goodness, like that really explains something that's going on today. And it, and sometimes that's, it's an accurate insight. It's really like a profound insight. You know, like I think, you know, Nietzsche and then following Shaler had this critique of resentment, right? Which is like a sour grapes mentality that shapes a lot of the things that go on. I think that's right. But if everything is shaped by resentment, <laughs> we've got a problem, right? Um, then I think Noelle Mehring says it's like, yeah, there's, there's, uh, she said, she starts out her, her essay by saying, uh, St. John Paul, she said, famously said, 
that the problem with pornography is not that it shows too much of the person, but it shows too little of the person. And, and she uses that as this kind of model of what ideology does. It's not that it doesn't, just, it's like that's how ideology works. She says, what the pornographer does to women, the ideologue does to all of reality. He has no desire to contend with the world as it is, but sees it in a sense to use it to support his predetermined specification. That goes to, to Dan's point. And so he diminishes it. And so again, this is where she goes to that reverence. I think that aligns with your tool, like looking at opportunity costs, looking at the knowledge problem, looking at reverence, um, asking yourself, you know, am I, have I tried to explain everything this? Or am I wrong on this? And, and I think the other thing too um, is asking people for critique. Like it, I don't, I've, I've been trying like for myself, like, okay, am I wrong? Correct me on this, right? Don't block people on Twitter if they disagree with you. Okay. I mean, if they're jerks, okay, that's different. But if there's, I'm serious. Like, right. I think it's a problem. Like there's a blocking thing that's going on. Like here, I have a question for you. Block. Like that, that's that, like we have to, we have to be able to have actual dialogue, you know? I mean, again, I'm not saying if somebody's hassling you, you know, somebody like Dan, they're hasslers, but, but I mean, you know, uh, but, but I think, you know, there's a sense, notice what I mean by that. You, you know that there's this kind of sense like, oh, I, suppression of questions, suppression of questions. And I think having questions, asking those opportunity costs, having reverence, being able to be wrong, being able to refine your position. And that's where pride and hu ultimate hubris, but pride has to be pushed down and we have to be humble because hum humility is also a deep reverence for the truth. You know, uh, one other thing I really appreciate about uh, Noah Merring's essay is she made an anthropological connection. And she said at one point that, you know, t totalitarianism ultimately thinks that that human nature is not stable, right? It's a rejection of a stable human nature. And I think we see instances of history where to, where ideology has created a, a totalitarian state, it's ended up always creating mass casualties, right? You know, hundreds of millions of people that have been the victims of Marxist ideology and so forth. And so I think that ideology has a real very practical um, risk. And that is if it doesn't hold the person in reverence, if it doesn't have a proper anthropology, it can become a political tool that tries to manipulate people, whether it be just a simple economist trying to say, well, look, our empirical studies say that we should pursue this policy and that's the way people are always going to behave. You know, the same way we say chemicals in a test tube always react the same way. Well, it can become even more extreme where you have a totalizing state that seeks to try to manipulate in, in uh, humanity. It's so. the Tower of Babel, which yes. Kurt, Kurt Byron writes about, right, in his piece on the, the, the problem of, of the Tower of Babel and that this idea that social engineering, the human mind can build its way up to God. And as you said, um, I know we don't have much time left, so, so I think so in short, I mean, as you said, this, this is like I've talked about, this, the Tower of Babel is this recurring theme through human nature. And this is what I think Dan makes an important point. I do think we live in an ideological age right now. I think it's not just 2021. I mean, the last, say, century or so. But it, it's not a brand new thing for the human being or group of human beings to try to come up with a technical solution to the problem of evil, sin, suffering, and death. You know, and interestingly, when when the disciples tried to make Jesus king, he he pushed them away and went away. And I think there's that Ratzinger kind of deals with this issue in his uh, first volume of Jesus of Nazareth, you know, that Jesus is not a technical Messiah, and we we want a Tower of Babel solution to the world. We want it's a recurring theme. Um, and it, it's very frustrating 
often bothersome when you find out that you've been wrong or that there's no real solution to the deepest problems of evil, sin, suffering, and death, at least not a technical solution. So when you think of ideology, and at least in the negative connotation we've been discussing it, there's another phrase out there, and I want you to help me with this. People talk about worldview, worldview. And oftentimes it's done in such a way as to say, hey, look, you need to be cognizant of your own worldview and, and, uh, and, and then be, be responsive and make decisions in accordance with that worldview insofar as it's true. So what is the difference? Is there a difference between ideology and worldview or are they two sides of the same coin? What, what, what do you think? Uh, I think that's a great question. So we, we've done a lot of work here at Acton, especially with uh, Abraham Kuyper, and he emphasized he's a Calvinist, uh, neo-Calvinist um, Christian, 19th, early 20th century, did a lot of great things. Um, I recommend everyone look him up. But he talked about having a uh, reformed Calvinist you know, world and life view, and he, he encouraged this for everyone. He talked about, well, we can't solve our economic problems unless we have an architectonic critique of all society, right? Um, a, a phrase he, he got to some degree from the socialists and Marxists in his time. Um, the difference, I think, is that the idea of having a worldview is – Hopefully, I think it can become ideology. I don't think it's immune from that. But hopefully the idea is to try to be self-consistent, mm. right? So if, if let's say I'm Abraham Kuyper, I'm, I'm not reformed, but let's say, you know, if I'm, it, from his perspective, he's reformed. So he believes in the sovereignty of God uh, before all else. Uh, well, where does this lead him? What implications does this mean uh, for other aspects of life? It doesn't mean, oh, I, I therefore don't need... Um, you know, natural science, or I don't need economics, or I don't need um, politics or philosophy or whatever. He just says, how should this shape my engagement with those things? So it's sort of like a a, a way of thinking through, well, where, where do I start? What's my starting point? Not in the sense of what are the conclusions I'm going to presume? That's that's begging the question uh, before I get to the the end of things. But how are the things that I hold most dear uh, going to guide me wherever I go? How are my convictions going to stay true? So he's a Christian, right? He believes uh, when it comes to solutions to specifically what Michael was talking about, uh, sin, death, suffering. Um, ultimately, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's not anything... Right. that anyone can do, uh, certainly a Reformed Christian will tell you that, uh, that this is up to God. It's about the grace of God. Um, and what we get to do from his perspective is we get to to be little stewards of that. We get to hopefully spread that vision to people and that grace to people, but there's no formula for that. Um, and I think that would be the difference. The ideology is going to reduce things to formula. It's mm. going to presume the conclusions uh, when it asks a question, uh, whereas worldview is more uh, about like, well, what am I asking a consistently Christian question in the first place? Or am I, am I um, when I'm looking at all the possible answers, am I considering, you know, what lens do I have? Uh, for saying, well, this this is true to what I believe or not. You know, when we talk about things like um, the law of non-contradiction, whatever, well, that's, you're having a logical worldview at the mm. very least. And, um, you know, we could even point to, again, philosophy, you know, Hegel to some degree denies the law of con- non-contradiction. That's the whole point. You have thesis saying one thing, antithesis saying the opposite, and then the two are combined in synthesis. And this is a sort of process that exists in reality. So he doesn't think it says, it says people think. Um 
I actually think he's kind of right about that to some degree. But uh, um, that's a, a whole different discussion for another time. But um, but so that's that's how I look at it. It's you have your convictions and you want to be consistent uh, with them um, when you are then hopefully humbly approaching all sorts of different areas of life. Um, so it's, it's a way to maintain consistency to your convictions. Uh, that's what a worldview should do. Can I say one quick thing? We won't debate the Hegel and the Lama contradiction. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, those are probably kind of almost like talking past each other maybe a bit. But uh, Yes, but, definitely. Yeah. So, but I think the other, the other thing is just one, yes, I, I agree with Dylan, you know, worldview can become ideological, et cetera. I, I think one of the things maybe that this worldview language is trying to get people to do is, as, he, as Dylan said, consistency, a certain coherence and thinking about it, but also to realize that, say, secularism is not neutral, right? And I think that's the other question. Like, everybody has a worldview. You know, I wrote about this in, an, in another piece that, that, it, that just came last week about people make the mistake between impartiality and neutrality, right? To say that justice should be impartial, that's not a neutral position. There is no neutral position filling the public square. And I think that's part of the, the thing that one of the one of the things we're dealing with now, this is a little bit off the topic of ideology, but is as secularism becomes dominant, people will say, you know, why are you bringing religion into it, right? Or why are you bringing this into it? As, the, as if secularism and the anthropological assumptions of secularism are somehow neutral. Like, no, they're not neutral at all. And I think part of the, in a sense, worldview work, at least that I, that I, you know, see and have been, been around a little bit is to get people to think, okay, hold on, do a self-examination of what you actually think and what say the, the secular articulation is. And are you maybe buying in to some position that actually is in conflict with your deepest beliefs mm -hmm. because you haven't thought it through. Right. So think it through now again. And then, so the ideological element would be like, there's no way you can, you know, this is the answer, the full answer. The, the philosophical view would be say, actually you're holding two things at the same time, right? Which are incoherent with each other. They're mutually exclusive to each other. And so you, you, you're in a sense, have a worldview of the secularist and the worldview of the reformed or, or the Catholic. And it's time for you to actually do self-examination. I think that, that I think is the, the positive part of Yeah, what. I like that, the internal coherence. And so there's that aspect, the internal coherence. There's something else that a couple of essays brought up that are more outward looking. And, and I thought this was very interesting. I want to see what you think about this. But two, two of the authors, um, in this case, I think it, it was Carlos Lancelotti as well as Jay Bruce, made the connection between ideology and a lack of impartiality. Okay, impartiality. So here I'm thinking more outward looking, making judgments, et cetera. Jay Bruce talks uh, about this in terms of social justice and so forth. So, so what is the connection? Are, are ideologues filtering and unable to be able to be impartial in their judgments of the world around them. So this is a way we can we can bring this the worldview into this discussion. Cuz one of the ways that Abraham Kuyper uses worldview, sometimes more successfully than others, is to try to get inside and appreciate other perspectives. In his famous lectures on Calvinism, he talks about, you know, the, not only the Calvinist worldview, but the Roman Catholic, the Lutheran, the secular, and there are members of those traditions, including me, that would think that he was a little wrong about that. But it's a good faith effort to try to appraise those differences. And why does he want to appraise those differences? Because he wants to find common ground. Mm -hmm. 
in the in the where they can where there can be in those differences and he himself was involved in a political coalition with roman catholics so this is this is sort of part of his life's work um if you look at what ideology often does is it creates others obstacles these uh, you know these these reactionary or dare i say ideological forces aligned against you and I think one of the ways you transcend that is you focus on the human person, which is what we do at the Acton Institute. You establish some sort of personal credibility and then you seek to understand that person and those concerns because a, a, a lot of what animates ideology are legitimate concerns about social injustice. Mm-hmm. And then from that place of sort of empathetic alignment with those concerns, then you begin the dialogue on solutions. And that's that's – that's where the argument begins. And it, it should never begin with conflict. I mean, that's that you, if, if you begin with conflict, you're going to end with conflict. You know, just a, another thing to think that's, that when you talk about a worldview or a, view, a vision, um, and that is, for example, one of the beginnings of my worldview, okay, is that being is good. Now, that's deeply influenced by the, my, my Catholic faith and the Jewish and the Catholic tradition that God creates the world, he declares it good. And that the world's intelligible, right? These are, in a sense, deeply held positions that shape the way I see the world, right? They're debatable, right? I mean, there's a big debate of whether being is good or not, or is it evil? I mean, this is like, is, 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 is creation good or is matter evil something to escape from? I mean, that's Manichaeanism wants to escape from, from the body, right? So I think there, I think that's another element of, of, of worldview is trying to articulate those those deepest, um, uh, say, pre- they're, they're almost like uh, orientation or assumptions at the bottom and be able to articulate some of them and question them, right? And that would be the philosophical question. It may be, maybe I'm wrong. Being, maybe being is evil, right? And so, so but, but realizing, I think that's part of the other, the other element of, of this. And then the last thing, just real quick, is that I think that's what, again, no, it's interesting that you talked about the person because Noel Merring's book, Awake Not Woke, which she is kind of related to some of her essays, she makes this very point Dan does like, look, injustice is real. There's a reason why people are upset. I mean, I think this is, I think it was Christopher Lash said, there's, there's something compelling about the Marxist critique and that's why it's been so enduring. And so the question is, um, and I think this is also a challenge for us at, 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 at say at the Act Institute or other people say on the, on the kind of like who are anti-Marxists is to say, well, okay, the social justice position is compelling for a reason. Like Kimberly Crenshaw, who was the founder of intersectionality, kind of, um, I think she's deeply wrong on lots of things. But her first insight was right. I mean, like I don't know if it had to do with I think um, Ford Motor Company or something. It was General hired, Motors. General Motors. Yeah, had hired uh, this a, a, a black woman had had a, applied for a job she wasn't hired, and she said it was because of discrimination. And they said. Why well, not discriminate you? We have we have um, we have uh, w- uh, white we have white workers and black workers. She said yes, but you have black men and white women. You don't have any black women, and and there was something right about that, right? So there's something. I think we when when we get a reaction, especially one that creates a lot of social questions, right? I think it's really important to ask ourselves why is this happening? What's the reaction? And, and instead of us just being reactionary against it because they also hold all these positions that we think are wrong, take seriously the question of justice and then go back to what does it mean to be a human person? I think Dan's point, and this is, I think, Noel's point. Um, 
And this is where I do think, in a sense, reverence, but also anthropology. And I, and I argue in my essay, religion, properly understood, is an antidote to the temptation of ideology because it keeps you open to reality and open to the question that you, in fact, might be wrong. So I, I want to jump on this as sort of a wrap up. And if somebody was to ask you, <clears throat> how can I inoculate myself from the risk of becoming an ideologue? What advice would you give or what would you say about what you do yourself to guard against that temptation? So why don't we go around the room first to perhaps uh, Dylan? What do you um, think? One thing I do that I would recommend, um, although it's time consuming, um, but I try to expose myself to as many different perspectives as I can. So I, I actually I'll do two I'll do two things because I do these both at the same time. I stay grounded. So I, I'm Greek Orthodox. I go to liturgy every Sunday. Say my prayers every morning and evening, you know, that sort of thing. Read my Bible. Um, so I have those things, that tradition that I maintain that keeps me grounded. But then at the same time, um, whether it's news outlets or more academic perspectives, other podcasts, you know, that sort of thing, I'm trying to make sure, uh, or even uh, probably best of all, through friendships, uh, people I know that I know don't agree with me. Uh, I I always value the, the time I get is... Uh, rare as it sometimes is, to just sit down and hear their perspective and hear what motivates them. Um, because, yeah, there are things that um, I may not understand or agree with, but uh, you sit down with someone that, you know, they you know say they're, they're questioning their gender identity. Well, gender dysphoria is a real phenomenon. This is a, an example of genuine existential suffering that human beings in the image of God are experiencing. Uh, and if my first response to that is to say, well, here's why you're wrong, I'm failing to be compassionate and loving, which as a Christian is where I should start. Um, so I might not come to full agreement with them at the end of that conversation, uh, but I really value having that kind of a conversation. And and I think the more we can expose ourselves to other perspectives in uh, the context of friendship, in the context of that that genuine uh, love between two human beings, um, then we can be guarded against ideology. Great. Thanks. How about you, Dan? I think the way to do it is through history, because that is where there were ideological struggles of the past that do not neatly map on to our ideological struggles in the present. And I think if you go back, I think if you go back and even read figures like Marx, Nietzsche, Freud, the masters of suspicion, it shows you that there is not um, – that this isn't really about ideas in our uh, – much of the time in our contemporary context. And it's about ideology. And even going back to those, to those people that you know, we, might, we might characterize as ideologues today, they don't match up very neatly to their representations in the present and that is also helpful to do with people we'd be more sympathetic with. Let's say Acton, Tocqueville, Bastiat. You know, you want to read a discussion about privilege in the 19th century, Bastiat's full of it. This very language of privilege that many people on the contemporary right are alienated by. And all of a sudden you can go back and in the 19th century, what is the great, what is the great liberal struggle? The great liberal struggle is one against privilege. Um, so I think that sort of grounding really helps, helps clarify these things. Terrific. I mean, it's such, it's such a great example for history because, you know, the, the kind of the liberal tradition, uh, broadly understood, like, like this in a sense that we're going to resist against privilege, 
right? And so you have a lot of people on the conservative right who are like influenced by those people. And then you have the progressives who are resisting against privilege. Like, how dare you resist against privilege, right? And so I think it's, I think the history thing is, is really good. I think also all of um, uh, Dylan's points <clears throat> about keeping oneself grounded. Um, so I, a couple, just to add uh, quickly, I think that one, that, that human element that we have to enter into intersubjectivity, that each of us is a subject, and to not, to not objectify the other is a resistance to, is, is I think a, one of the elements of resistance to, to ideology, because now you're always dealing with someone who's a subject like you, another thou, in, in Martin Buber's words. Um, so I think that's one. I think the other, as I talk about, I mean, really taking the understanding of the truth is the conforming of the mind to reality and being reverence, be, rev, having reverence before being, allowing to be shaped by you and that you might be wrong and not be so attached. And I think this is where this, this if, if ideology is partially in a bad attachment of the will to purify our will right, and to purify our, our intellect. Um, and I think in the, in, and again, I think they, the Dan and, and Dylan have already done such a good job, but I think the other, the other thing maybe contemporary problem is um, we live in an age where there's the primacy of the technical and the primacy of the technical. One part is like, well, if, if you can do it, just do it. So techno technique determines morality. But I think the second part of the primacy of the technical is, is to believe that there's always a technical technological solution to the problems that face us. So, you know, Yuval Harari says, you know, death is just a glitch. And, um, and I think there's something, uh, I think that being aware or, or saying, you know, maybe you can't solve every problem with the next technique, political, the next social policy or economic policy or political policy or, 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 or digital technology or whatever it might be. You can't solve the problem of, of what it means to be a human person, right? It's not, it's not a problem to be solved or something to escape from. And I think that takes like a lot of like existential reflection. And I think going back to prayer, to legend hours, to history, to, to looking at, 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 um, at ourselves, not simply as something to be solved. And that, that's just really hard in this generation, this time, because come on, well, what's the solution to that? Like, what's the life hack? What's a life hack to life? There is no life hack to life now. And again, like I'm, I'm, I'm a Catholic. So part of the life hack is, to pray the liturgy of the hours, to go to liturgy, right? Uh, to go to confession, <laughs> to have self-awareness and to, do, to, to engage with the lives of the saints and to, um, you know, profit from your faults, even uh, as uh, St. Francis de Sales says, uh, where you're on this kind of vision of, of being in deep relationship with God and with other people. So I think that technical element uh, is, is really something to, to be aware of. Thanks so much. I really appreciate you all joining me today. If I could only add, I think your the things that you've said about how to guard yourself against ideology really resonate with me. I think if you do stay grounded, think about history, have a proper respect for the human person, it will maintain that sense of wonder, right? I think that's the one thing that I, I try to remind myself there's so much I don't know, right? And maintain that helps you maintain the sense of wonder when you learn new things. And I think there's something else that really helps. Not everybody has this privilege, right? But it does help to have a family, to have children, right? You know, and to have little babies who get stuff all over you and to have, to see the, the unique unrepeatability of each person. And that in a sense, like the complexity and like being, you know, Carter Sneed has this book called What It Means to Be Human and talks about the, un, like the uncalculated grace of giving and receiving and this idea of mutual indebtedness. 
And I think um, he's a really, just, just a, you made me think about this. And in fact, Steve is working on a book, okay, which should be out, what, next week? No, maybe not. I'm writing it tonight. Uh, tonight, okay. <laughs> on, on, on basically to encourage people, like, have more children because children are, it's a, it's a blessing, uh, but uh, for many, many reasons. He'll, he'll, we'll do that later. But, but in this point, the, Carter Sneed points this, makes this point out, right? The dominant view of like, we think about ourselves as this expressive individualist, you know, kind of individual person. And this goes to Dylan's point. Actually, we're only really powerful for a small part of our life, right? In the first beginning of our life, we're deeply reliant and indebted to others. And at the end of our life, we're also deeply related to others. And so like, personally, I don't talk about this very often, but in my household, my father uh, is 95 and my son is one. And so I have a big range of people. And, and, you know, as you get older, you need help. And when you're younger, you need help and all the ages between, and we all need help. And I think that, that I think that, that interrelation, intersubjectivity is part of being grounded when you're in relationships with other people's and people, this gives you authentic community. And I think is really a natural resistance against ideology. Ladies and gentlemen, the issue of religion and liberty is thinking clearly in a time of ideology. We thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. There are many articles we couldn't get to, but we encourage you to read it online. Thanks for joining us. Act in our mind. <laughs>